the uh, portion of God's Word that we're looking at this morning, the last four words of the letter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 21. Grace be with you. And that's it. And may it be, may the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word and to the preaching of His Word this morning. You may be seated. You, uh, I hate to uh, I hate to say there are seats up here in the front, but I know no one wants to sit up here. So uh, sorry to sorry to draw attention to that. Everybody look at me. Don't look at anyone else. So, my bad. My bad. So. Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, you are the God of mercy. You are the giver of all grace and every good gift. Lord, by your good decree, Jesus has delivered us. Father, thank you for giving your beloved Son so that we would be your holy children. Lord, we thank you for grace. Lord, we we live on grace. We need grace. We, We don't think about grace enough. I thank you that you are not only a merciful God, you are a gracious God. And for all eternity, your purpose for those in Christ is to do nothing other than pour out upon us the riches of your grace in kindness on those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray you would remind us of grace this morning and that Paul's prayer for the believers in Ephesus would be answered almost 2,000 years later here in Oak Ridge Community Church. We love you. We want to love you more. We pray that you would bless us with your spirit. Give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the true knowledge of you this morning. And teach us, Lord, all that belongs to us as those who, by your grace, are in Christ Jesus. Father, if there's anyone here who is not in your Son, I pray by your mercy, Lord, you would bring them in to that glory of union with Christ. Magnify your saving name and the power of your mighty hand this morning, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is, as Lauren has already hinted at, uh, today's an important day. Uh, In some ways, it's a sad day. I realized last night as I was pulled up my, in my Bible study program, I have folders that save all of the work that that I'm working on and all my books and keep everything on my computer in the right spot. And, uh, I've got it titled 1 Timothy. Every day of my work week for the past two years, almost, I've opened that folder. Same folder, same books, same notes section. And I realized yesterday is going to be, that was the last day that I'm opening up that folder. And uh, I am kind of a sentimental guy. I'm very emotional, and it did bring a tear to my eye, I will confess. But uh, it's 
Today is not only important and in some way sad, but it's also a joyful day. We reach the closing sentence of the letter of 1 Timothy, which means we will be done with this book. Some of you are like, hallelujah, I'm going to be out of this book, onto something else. Um, but it, it is worth repeating that we've spent almost the last two years of our life as a church walking through this book. And uh, I pray that it has not been in vain. Trust that our church is better because of it. Now, two years ago, we began this series with the question, what is a healthy church? What is a healthy church? Now, this letter closes with four simple words that are the vital ingredient of a healthy church. Four simple words are grace be with you. This is known as a benediction. It's Paul's closing prayer for blessing to be upon these believers. Not only upon Timothy, but as I mentioned last week, the you in this verse is plural. So when Paul is saying grace be with you, he's not just talking to Timothy, he's talking to every single believer in that church who would be impacted by Timothy's ministry. And that blessing that Paul is praying for them to know and to receive in greater measure is the blessing of God's grace. you mind turning me down just slightly, please? Now this last phrase in 1 Timothy is more than just an empty tagline. It's not just something that Paul could write just to signal that he's ending the letter. This little phrase captures the foundation and the substance of a healthy and vibrant Christian life. You're not going to walk healthily with Christ. You're not going to walk in fellowship with Christ. You're not going to be joyful in Christ. You're not going to make progress in righteousness and holiness and grace and truth if this is not true of you. God's grace is not with you. The church runs on grace. You could say that. What is it? America runs on Dunkin' Donuts? Is that right? That's bad. That's a bad one. I know. But but uh, not America. I wish America ran on grace. The church runs on God's grace. And with these final words, Paul prays for the church in Ephesus to have that grace in fullest measure. Now, one of the problems I think most Christians have today is that they do not really understand what the Bible means when it talks about grace. Or maybe we understand what grace means, but we don't think about it enough. We don't hear it enough. But what I want to do today is take advantage of the opportunity that we have and look further into some of the meaning and importance and practical applications of grace in the Christian life. Now, I need you to understand, whenever I use the term grace, I'm referring specifically to God's saving grace. Some of you may know this, some of you may not, but there are two ways to think about God's grace. There's God's common grace, which is upon the whole world covers the earth, right? We're talking about God's provision of food, God's provision of rain, sunshine, joys in life like family and children and work. We're talking about the greatest illustration in the Bible of God's common grace is Genesis uh, 8, where God swears, putting the rainbow in the heaven, that I will not flood the earth again. I will preserve life. That is God's common grace that is upon sinners in this world. That's not the grace that I'm talking about when I'm talking about God's grace this morning. We're talking about God's grace this morning, the grace that Paul's praying would be upon the church here in Ephesus. We're talking about God's saving grace, the grace that comes upon a sinner and brings that sinner out of the state of sin into union with Christ and unto glory. It's that saving grace of God that will perfect salvation in the life of a sinner. So just keep that in mind as we walk through this this morning. 
Now, we're not going to get anywhere close to an exhaustive discussion of the grace of God. I hope some of you won't be too disappointed. But I do pray that what we will cover will be helpful. So as we begin, uh, here's just the simple outline for today. Main point one is the importance of grace. The importance of grace. Main point two, the nature of grace. And then main point three, the application of grace. So the importance, the nature, and the application. Let's look at this first one together, the importance of grace. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul is called the Apostle of Grace. The Holy Spirit used Paul to explain the relationship of God's grace to the believer more clearly than any other writer in the New Testament. In fact, one stat that I read said that out of the 154 uses of the word grace in the New Testament, a hundred of them are used, found in the letters of the Apostle Paul. So two-thirds of the usage there. Now you can find, and I hope you'll go back and look at this, the clearest treatments of God's grace in Christ can be found, for example, in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, uh, Romans chapters 3 through 6 in particular. If you want to go study out uh, more of those clear treatments of grace from Paul. But in essence, what we find in Paul's writings is that Paul was a man that was captivated by the beauty and the power of God's grace in Christ. He was a man who never got over grace in his own life. We can even see this uh, in the way that Paul opens and closes his letters in the New Testament. Every single letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament opens and closes with Paul appealing to God to lay more grace upon the believers to whom he's writing. In fact, we see that here in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, when we were there, when he was writing to Timothy personally, he said, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how he opens the letter. And then here at the end, 1 Timothy 6, 21, Paul says, grace be with you. Now this tells us that for Paul, grace is the vital ingredient that must be thoroughly mixed into the life of the church in order to obey or understand everything that he's written in this letter. From beginning to end, everything that he is writing or has written in this letter is to be saturated with the idea of God's grace. It's to begin with God's grace and it's to end with God's grace and God's grace is to impact and infiltrate every aspect in between. All the instruction that we have looked at in this letter is grounded upon and will be carried out only by God's grace. What we find in the New Testament is that God's grace is at the heart of salvation. It undergirds and empowers not only things like conversion and justification and being declared righteous before God, but also it is God's grace that undergirds and empowers the entire process of sanctification in the life of the believer. You live on grace, is my point. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you thrive on grace. And every part of your life is covered with God's grace. That is what is being emphasized here as Paul closes this letter with an appeal for God's grace to be upon these believers. Now, seeing this emphasis in the New Testament, the Reformers understood that God's grace was foundational to everything in the Christian life. You guys remember the five solas of the Reformation, those five summary statements that capture the real essence of what was being taught and re-proclaimed in the time of the Reformation. Anybody remember the first one? Actually, I may not ask, don't let me ask you that, because you, you may have them in a different order than I do. For example, sola scriptura, right? The Latin phrase for scripture alone. During the time of the Reformation, there was this return to the word of God as the sole and sufficient rule for life and faith in the church. 
Not councils, not decrees, not popes, not man's ideas or opinions, but the word of God. What God has written for us to live by and to follow in his word. Then you have solus Christus, right? Christ alone. The central declaration of God's word from beginning to end. This is the golden strand that runs from Genesis to Revelation, the reality that God was working and affecting salvation for sinners through Jesus Christ. Yeah, I just can't. I can't leave that one. Christ alone. Think about what this means. <laughs> and we're not talking about Christ alone today. I hope, hope it in some ways we are. I'm trying to get to grace alone. But think about Christ alone. Christ alone as the one who came to fulfill the law for us. The only one who was able to live that perfect, righteous life on our behalf in the presence of God. Christ alone as the one who could only drink the wrath of God on our behalf and actually bring satisfaction to it. See, this is, the, this is what people don't understand. When we go to hell, hell is eternal because hell never actually fulfills the demands of God's law upon the sinner. The sinner can never satisfy God's wrath enough in order to be released from the punishment their sin deserves. But Jesus Christ alone has drank down the full cup of the wrath of God and He has risen again victorious over it. Christ alone. Christ alone. Man, Christ alone rising up from the dead, proving that only He could rise from the dead and only He can and will bring His people up from the dead. Christ alone. Christ alone. Christ alone ascending into glory. People don't think about this one. Christ alone ascending into glory so that He alone proving himself that he alone is able to bring many sons with him to glory. Right? I mean, this is, this is uh, no wonder the Reformation was just wildfire spreading everywhere. These truths being lost for so many years and being recovered. But you have these declarations, sola scriptura, sola, solus Christus, sola fide. Right? If that's what Christ has done, if it is Christ alone, if salvation is perfect and complete and nothing needs to be added to it by the sinner, then how does the sinner receive it? Well, the Bible's answer is with nothing other than the empty hand of faith reaching up to God. Not to offer God anything, but simply to grab on to what God has provided in His Son. That's faith. And then... As the Reformers declared boldly, the end of it all, the purpose and the goal in God saving sinners, solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. God's glory alone. That God has worked and accomplished salvation for sinners in such a way that for all eternity, He alone will get the glory for the grace we receive. Now, as a church body, we stand in the stream of the Protestant Reformation, and we gladly and joyfully hold high those truths and rejoice in them. But there is one sola that is at the heart of all of the others. And that's what is brought up before us here in Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6.21. That is sola gratia, grace alone. You could ask a question of every single one of the other solas and say, why? Why this? Why that? And the answer to every single one of them is grace. Why save sinners by faith alone? Why not require them to work and keep the law and earn their own way to God? Why faith alone? Because grace alone. Why send God the Son to be a perfect Savior so that sinners could be saved by nothing other than the finished work of Christ alone? Sola gratia. Grace alone. How does salvation of sinners lead to the glory of God? Scripture's answer to that is five-letter word, grace. Grace alone. See, the Reformers saw in the testimony of Scripture 
that grace is the foundation of everything else in, in the Christian life. And without it, no matter what we're trying to do, all we have is a house of cards that is ready to fall. Grace is the key that unlocks the mystery of living the Christian life with confidence and with assurance and without fear for the believer. Grace is the power for the believer to actually do what God commands us to do. Grace is the sinner's motivation and encouragement to flee to God for forgiveness of sin and flee to Christ for refuge. And nothing else will cause a people either to have the strength or to have the motivation to obey God's will in Christ except experiencing God's grace working mightily in their own hearts. This is why Paul ends this letter with a prayer for grace. It's the foundation of everything else that he's written. I think John Stott captures it well in his commentary when he writes this. These believers, to whom Paul's writing, these believers in Ephesus would not be able in their own strength to reject error and fight for truth. They would not be able in their own strength to run from evil and pursue goodness. They would not have strength in themselves to uh, renounce covetousness and cultivate contentment and generosity and in these Christian responsibilities to remain faithful to the end. They would not have strength in themselves to do it. So John Stott writes, at the letter's conclusion, as at its beginning, the apostle wishes for them above all else an experience of the transforming and sustaining grace of God. Isn't that wonderful? That's all they needed. And every believer who has, by God's grace, come to taste the goodness of God's grace knows that that's all these believers needed to be encouraged to do God's will. They didn't need programs and they didn't need methods. They didn't need a five-step program on how to walk in fellowship with Christ or ten steps to a more obedient life. They didn't need any of that stuff. All they needed was a richer, fuller, greater, uh, more encompassing experience of the grace of God in their own lives. And that would be enough to compel them to move forward in obedience to the Lord's will. It's not simply, Paul's not simply praying that they would have an enlarged knowledge about God's grace. And I want to point this out. He's not simply asking that they would understand more fully the nature of the grace of God, even though that's important. That's not what Paul's praying for here. Paul is praying that they would have a greater experience of the grace of God that has been made known. He says here, grace be with you. Grace be with you. That is, grace be among you. Grace be in company with you. Grace be operating within you. Paul says it in another way in Philippians 4.23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now notice what he says there. He doesn't say grace be with you so that you would have a greater mental conception of what that grace is. Rather, Paul says grace be with you as an internal principle working within your heart. I say this is the secret of living a faithful and rich and deep and heartfelt and ever increasing life of fellowship and communion with God. A richer and fuller, all-encompassing revival. Not only in your understanding, but in your experience of gospel grace. That's what Paul's praying for here. For these believers. And you and I, as a church body, this is what we ought to be praying for ourselves as well. Now, if all that's true, and the grace of God truly is that important. 
then the most important thing we can do is seek to understand what the Bible is talking about when it speaks about God's grace. The more we understand what God's grace is, the more we will know how to walk with God in the light of His grace, which will then lead to a greater experience of His grace working in our lives. So, secondly, we want to look at, after seeing the importance of grace, we want to look at the nature of grace. What is the nature of God's grace? And because I am who I am, I think it's better that we start on the negative and work to the positive. My mind always goes to the negative first. So, let's look, first of all, at what God's grace is not. I have four things here that are really important to understand what God's grace is not. God's grace is not the same as God's mercy. God's grace is not the same thing as God's mercy. God's mercy is His kindness withholding from us what we deserve. When God acts in mercy towards us, it is God choosing not to give us what we deserve. God's grace, on the other hand, is God giving to us what we do not deserve. So on the one hand, it's God not giving to us what we do deserve. That's mercy. Grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve. That's God's grace. Second thing God's grace is not. God's grace is not sentiment in God. One of you got that. In other words, God's grace is not an attitude or a remote, an emotional response from God that is prompted by feelings. Grace is not a sentimental feeling or an emotion in God that He may or may not have towards us. If that's how we understand and define grace, you know what we're going to be doing. We're going to be working to make sure that God continues to feel graciously towards us. And our salvation will become a system of works, working for God's grace. God's grace is not sentiment. It's not feeling. Thirdly, God's grace is not God turning a blind eye to sin. When God shows grace, it is not because He is ignoring a person's sin. In fact, it's the very reality that God does not ignore a person's sin that makes grace so magnanimous. It's that He sees your sin and yet chooses to be gracious to you at the same time. But it's not because He ignores sin. I remember in, uh, I think it was 2008... First year I moved up here, so I think it would have been 2008. I saw a news clip at work one night uh, covering the Gay Pride Festival. I think it was 2008. And at that, at that festival, there were three or four guys. I can't remember how many there were, but they were up on stage at this Gay Pride Festival, and they were singing that song, Your grace is enough. Your grace is enough, right? But when I saw that, I was just utterly dumbfounded. It's like, your grace is enough. What do you mean by that? As if God is so loving and kind that he will accept and receive these men... even though they were still clinging tightly to a lifestyle of sin. That's not how God's grace works. God gives grace to those who repent of sin, to those who come to His Son. And more importantly than that, Romans 3.24 tells us that when God bestows His grace freely upon sinners, it's not because He was overlooking that sin, but rather it's on the basis of Christ's work of making a complete and full satisfaction for sin that God bestows His saving grace upon sinners. 
See, God freely justifies sinners through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, but that redemption that's in Christ Jesus, that buying back of the sinner from what that sinner deserves, that's what redemption is, the redeeming price, Jesus giving over the price to pay for your soul, that redemption that's in Christ Jesus is built upon the truth of propitiation. You know what propitiation is? It is a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. See, the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whereby God freely justifies sinners and gives them grace and forgiveness of sin, it's built upon the foundation of Christ's blood being shed for them. Jesus Christ gave His life as the foundation for God's grace. Now, if that tells us anything, it tells us that the cross is the supreme demonstration that when God is gracious towards sinners, it's not because He's merely overlooking their sin. God did not overlook sin when His Son bore it on the cross. And so His work on the cross becomes the foundation whereby God is gracious. Now, fourthly, I know I'm running through these pretty fast, but... Fourthly, God's grace is not supplemental. God's grace is not supplemental. This is really important to get. Is anybody familiar with the uh, Mormon church and their teachings? In the Book of Mormon, Second uh, Nephi, chapter twenty-five, verse twenty-three, it says this: "It is by grace we are saved, after we have done all we can do." It is by grace we're saved after we have done all we can do. Now that's viewing God's grace as something that is supplemental to what I can accomplish on my own. It's something that, that God adds to my work in order to make it measure up completely. Like, like maybe, maybe here's the standard and I can kind of work up to like this level. right? And then God's grace comes along and just kind of bumps me up the rest of the way. He adds to what I've done. That's not, that's not God's grace. At that point, salvation would be by works. And Romans 11, 6 says that salvation is by grace apart from works, meaning no consideration of works. Those are four things that grace is not. Now, if that's what grace is not, then the question is, what is it then? What is God's grace? Now, a classic definition of God's grace is, God's grace is God's unmerited favor. It is his unmerited favor. And there are two parts to that. First of all, favor. What is God's favor? What does that mean? In essence, that's talking about God's friendly disposition. His kindness, right? a, a disposition, a, a stance towards us from God that is filled with kindness. It's God's goodwill towards us. It's his compassion. It's even used in the Old Testament alongside God's loving kindness, his, his steadfast, his faithful, his unshakable covenant love. God's favor is his kind and friendly and compassionate, loving disposition towards sinners. And then the second part of that is it's unmerited favor. It's not only God's friendly and kind and compassionate, loving disposition towards us, but it is God's friendly, kind, loving, compassionate disposition towards us that was utterly undeserved by us. It's not something that can be earned. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God's grace or His favor is something that He, he freely, freely bestows. Now, if you're going to truly grasp the nature of grace, you have to understand where it comes from. If grace is God's unmerited favor, meaning it's His compassion and His kindness and His love being bestowed upon someone or being directed towards someone without cause on that person's part. The person didn't earn it. 
If that's what grace is, then where does grace come from? If it's not motivated by us, what is its motivation? The Bible's answer is that grace is rooted in the very character and nature of God. That God is gracious. He acts graciously towards sinners because that's what He is by nature. It's not merely something He does, but being gracious is an aspect of who He is. You can think about it this way. Grace is one way that God demonstrates His goodness towards sinners. I know this is heavy teaching, but please stay with me. You guys with me? I'm not afraid to ask that. Are you afraid to answer? No. Are you with me? Grace is one way that God's goodness is demonstrated towards sinners. Now you think about it like this. God's wrath against sinners is one way that God's righteousness is manifested against sinners. Because God is righteous, God treats a sinner with wrath. That's what the sinner deserves. On the other side of this, grace is the way that God's goodness interacts with a sinner. When God directs His goodness towards this sinner, one way that that goodness manifests is by pouring upon that sinner grace, unmerited favor. I'm simply saying that graciousness is a character trait in God. And understanding this is foundational to learning how to walk in fellowship with God. You are never going to walk in faith with God if you do not understand this vital principle about Him. That when He bestows grace upon an undeserving, unworthy sinner, it is motivated by nothing other than His own inherent nature. It's freely given. And if it's freely given at the first, what does that mean about how it will be given afterward? It will continue to be freely given. This is the great truth that God revealed about Himself to Moses and Israel. This was absolutely foundational for Israel to understand as a sinful people if they were going to learn to walk in fellowship with God. You remember in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Actually, I'm going to start in Exodus 33, 18, where Moses pleads with God after going back and forth and mediating on behalf of the sinful people of Israel, pleading with God not to destroy them because of their disobedience. God responds to Moses in this scenario and says, fine, Moses, I won't. I won't destroy them. I will continue to preserve them. And Moses gets so overwhelmed by God's dealings with his sinful people that he falls to his knees and he cries out to God, God, show me your glory. I don't understand you. I don't get you. Show me what this is all about. And Yahweh looks back to Moses in verse 19 and he says, okay, Moses, I'll do that. I will make all of my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name to you. You get to verse 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34, and that's where God does that very thing. Where God comes before Moses and declares, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving, how does that manifest? Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, if you didn't catch it there, there are six descriptions there relating to God's goodness and kindness and mercy and grace towards sinners. And there's one description there relating to God's justice towards sinners. Now, what does that mean? concerning the way we are to understand the nature of God and how we approach Him. I think Thomas Watson said it perfectly. When commenting on this verse, he said, God is more inclinable to mercy than He is to wrath. God is more inclined 
to show mercy to the sinner than he is to show wrath to the sinner. See, grace is not the result of some feeling that God gets towards us, nor is grace something that we earn from Him. Grace flows from God because it is His innate propensity to be gracious. That is, by nature, grace is an expression of God's own goodness, and He is predisposed to be gracious towards those who are undeserving. Now that means that God doesn't have to be coerced by us to give us grace. In fact, he can say in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 19, that he delights to show mercy and to have compassion. How can God delight to show mercy to those who are undeserving of it? only because it belongs to His nature to be merciful and to show off that mercy for the glory of His name. Watson said this also about God's grace and mercy. It says, He counts it His glory to be scattering pardons. He is desirous that sinners should touch the golden scepter of His mercy and live. God counts it as His glory to scatter pardons to the undeserving. My friend, I wonder if you believe that about God. I, I wonder if you really do believe that God would rather show you mercy than show you wrath. Do you really believe what God declares as His glory when He says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious? That's my glory, Moses. This is my glory, Moses. I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. I let it loose from the sinner. I don't hold them accountable. That's my glory, Moses. Do you you believe that? You know that, but do you believe it about God? Do you believe it when you wake up in the morning and you go to seek His face and He seems a billion miles away? Do you believe it when you've stumbled into that same besetting sin over and over again? Do you believe that if you turn to God in repentance and faith, He will be merciful to you? This is where the power comes from that I was talking about. The power to live the Christian life. It doesn't come by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just getting the job done. It comes by feeding upon the richness of God's gracious and compassionate disposition towards you. God would rather pour out upon sinners the riches of His abundant grace and compassion than to pour out upon them the fury of His holy wrath. And can I say something else on this verse? If the analysis is right, that God is laboring here to exalt His glory in mercy more than He is laboring to exalt His his glory in justice, That would indicate to me that God is more glorious when He shows grace and mercy than when He shows justice. If you think about it, which one's more difficult? Just think about it from your own perspective, your own situation. When someone wrongs you, which one is easier for you to do? To be angry and wrathful or to be gracious and forgiving? Well, obviously, to be angry and wrathful, right? We've been wronged. We feel wronged. We want to vindicate ourselves over against that other person. It shows more of God's glory when He treats undeserving sinners kindly than when He treats them in the full fury of His wrath. Paul knew that. In fact, Paul knew that personally. And that's why he could confidently invoke 
the grace of God and pray that God would lavish it upon these believers in Ephesus despite their unworthiness of it. I mean, think about what was going on in Ephesus, guys. Two years walking through this, you should know something about what was happening in Ephesus now. As imperfect as they are with all their failures, their sins, their temptations, all the distortions of the gospel that were running through the city, that were infecting the church, because of God's gracious and merciful disposition towards sinners, Paul could confidently invoke God's grace upon these believers without hesitation. How often do you hesitate to come to God and find His grace, thinking that He will some, for some reason withhold that grace from you. Paul was absolutely confident God was not going to withhold His grace from His people, and you should be just as confident when you approach God pleading for grace. You know, we, we come to God in what's called a throne of grace upon whom sits our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us come there boldly. Now, we will finish today regardless of how far we get, okay? <laughs> but I want to I pause here for a minute, and I want to ask you this question. This is a glorious truth, God's graciousness towards us. I mean, it's just, there's nothing like it. There's nothing more humbling. There's nothing more empowering. There's nothing more encouraging than to know that God is being gracious towards us. That God's being gracious to me. To you. What does it cost to really get gripped by this doctrine of God's grace? What is it going to take to really begin to grasp what it means for God to be gracious towards you? Now, for God to teach us how gracious He is towards us, you know what has to happen? He has to show you how unworthy you are of it. For God to show you the depth of His grace, just how deep it goes that you could never plumb the bottom of it. He has to show you how far down your sin goes. And how unworthy you are of that grace. If God doesn't do that, then His grace does not look very glorious. It's cheap grace. Cheap grace. See, for God to teach you what it means for Him to be gracious to a sinner, to be forgiving of iniquity, transgression, and sin, it means that for you... God must bring you to the point where you are absolutely crushed under the weight of your own sin. He must bring you to the point where you are destroyed by seeing more and more and more your own unfaithfulness to God and your own unworthiness of Him. See, to see how high His grace really is situated requires that you see how low you have fallen from His glory. As sinners, we have to be driven with Isaiah into the, into the depths of woe and self-condemnation so that when we get to that point, God can show us that even then, at our worst, when we see the worst things about ourselves, even there, His grace is present. Even there, He upholds you. Even there, His grace is under you. You are absolutely safe in your walk with the Lord. And this is why when you see your sin, you should not be as discouraged by it as you should be encouraged. Because all it does is qualify you all the more to be a recipient of His grace. Paul said, I'm the worst of sinners. 
And Jesus came to save me in his mercy, and I found his grace to be abundant with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, and he did that so that he would prove his patience towards those who would believe in him for salvation after me. See, being, being the chief among sinners for Paul did nothing more than qualify him to be a recipient of mercy. And if he was the chief of sinners, then for sure, if Christ was merciful to him, will he not be merciful to us? All right. Now, just to throw out some examples, go study Paul. Study his life. Go study Peter. God taught them about his grace by letting them fall in their own pride. I'll never, den I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll die with you if I have to. Jesus says, okay, we'll see. And in grace, he comes and restores Peter afterward. All right. That's the nature of grace. The nature of grace is that it's free, it's unmerited, and it flows out of the very character and nature of God. It's grounded upon the gospel of Christ. Now, thirdly, as we close, the application of grace. I want to look at the application of grace to the church. Paul's prayer for grace to be with the believers is a prayer for God to richly apply His grace to them. Now, what, what would that look like? What does it look like when God's grace is being applied to a body of believers? Well, in the Scriptures, there are many specific ways that are mentioned concerning how God applies His grace to believers, but generally, there are three that I'm going to mention this morning. The first experience of grace in the life of the believer is known as God's saving grace. We could call it God's saving grace. God's saving grace, that term kind of covers everything that God is doing in our lives on into eternity. But that initial experience is an experience of God's grace as saving grace. You can see that most clearly described in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. That even though we didn't deserve it, even though before God and in His presence we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even though the spirit of the prince of the power of the air was free to work in us as sons of disobedience, even though we, by nature, were children of God's wrath, born for wrath, despite all of that, verse 4 says, God being rich in mercy. His nature, Think of his nature there. Think of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 when you read that. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And here it is. For by grace you have been saved. Saving grace. Saving grace. Grace that ushers us into the beginning stages of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you notice in verse 7, what's the purpose, what's the goal in all of this application of saving grace? It's so that in the ages to come, God would show, shower upon us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See, <laughs> oh, I don't have time to apply this the way I want, but just what this means this is the good news of grace and where the power to truly live the Christian life comes from. See, there's never a time in your life as a believer if you have been united by faith to Jesus Christ, if you have died with Him to your sin, if you have been raised up by the Spirit to walk in newness of life in the name of Jesus, there is never a single time in your life where God does not look upon you through the lenses of His grace. Amen, Brother Seth. That was good preaching right there. That oh, was super encouraging. There's never a moment in your existence where God is not looking upon you through the lens of the immeasurable riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, Ephesians 1.7 says.
the more you sense your own unworthiness of it, the more deeply it will impact you and the more deeply your worship of God will, inc it will increase all the more. You know, God's... The glory of God's grace is that you have never deserved it. And He freely gives it. Through the blood of His Son, we've been gifted full redemption. We don't have to give God a reason to give it to us. And we don't have to give Him a reason to continue to give it to us. It flows from Him and it's built upon the finished work of His Son. And the only part that you and I have in receiving this grace is simply that. Just receiving it. Believing in it. Trusting in it. Relying upon it. Enjoying it. Knowing that we walk with God in a state of grace. It's a Romans 5.2, it's a state in which we are now standing by faith in Christ. So that's God's saving grace. Now, God's grace isn't limited to just that initial experience of bringing us into salvation in Christ. Secondly, be believers will experience God's, the glory of God's grace by experiencing, as, experiencing it as His sanctifying grace. There we go, got it out. First, His saving grace. Secondly, His sanctifying grace. The same grace that saves us is the grace that continues to sanctify us. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, it says that the grace of God has appeared. That grace that brings salvation for all men, that grace has appeared, and that same grace is what trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, the grace that saves us is the grace that continues to sanctify us. And the more that you understand, according to Colossians 1.6, the more that you understand the grace of God in truth, the more you will begin to bear fruit with that grace. And where God's grace is not sanctifying a person, God's grace is not saving that person. And so in this letter of 1 Timothy, where Paul is urging the believers towards a holy and godly sanctified life, the only way that that's going to happen, Paul knows this, is if they are constantly and continually being filled with the fresh sense of the saving grace of God. Now a third way that we experience the grace of God. Let's see if I can run through this here. God applies His saving, sanctifying grace in the lives of believers not only in those beginning ways, but also in what we will call God's serving grace. We experience it as His serving grace. That is the influence of God in the hearts and lives of His people that move them to be stewards of the grace they have received. Not for their own good, but for the spiritual good and benefit of others. 2 Corinthians 9.8, Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, I want you to notice this. This strengthening grace that Paul's talking about here is not just to do good works. It is God's strengthening grace to cause you to abound in doing good works. It's not just, oh man, I guess I just need to motivate myself with the grace of God and go do this for the church because I don't want to, but I need to. I don't want to go to prayer meeting, but I need to go to prayer meeting. I don't want to pray, but I need to pray. I don't want to read the Scriptures, but I need to read the Scriptures. Now see, God's grace is sufficient for us in our lives to cause us to move forward in doing those good things abundantly. 
And don't think about that just in quantity. It's not as though you're just doing all of these good works, this amount of good works piling up, piling up in number. It's talking about the quality of the good works that you're doing. You have a fullness. You have a richness. You have a power and a zeal in you as you seek to do those good works for the glory of God. That comes from the strengthening grace of God causing you to want to serve Him and to want to serve His people. It's God who is at work in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And the way he does that is by filling you with a sense of his grace. It's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15.10 when he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I worked harder than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. See, the grace of God that saved Paul And the grace of God that was sanctifying Paul is the same grace that continued to work in Paul, causing him to serve according to God's will. And you can just write these down. Romans 12.6 and 1 Peter 4.10 both tell you and me that even though we are not the Apostle Paul and we're not called to do what the Apostle Paul was called to do, we nevertheless have been given gifts according to God's grace, and it is our responsibility to be good stewards of that grace. And so as Paul prays for grace to be with these believers, he has these different elements in mind. That God would refresh them with a sense of His saving grace, that He would encourage them to continue looking upon God as their Savior and upon Jesus Christ as their hope. That they would be filled with sanctifying grace so that they could adorn the gospel of grace with the life of godliness. And then that, they, that by God's grace, they would all have the strength to serve one another according to God's will will for them. Now as we end here right now. This is the key. I've said this three times now. It's the third time I have this phrase here and I left it there. This is the key to living a faithful life of holy communion with Christ. The health and the strength and the maturity, the growth of this body in the ways of the Lord, it depends upon every single member in this place feeding upon God's grace, relying upon God's grace, walking with the God of grace and trusting in Him as the God of grace. All that we've covered in this letter will be in vain if you are not seeking to be satisfied in the grace of God as you seek to obey it. Now, the whole Christian life is sola gratia, and I wonder where in your own life are you not living in the light of God's grace? Would you say that there are any areas in your life where it seems that God's grace is not with you? That you're not walking in it? Objectively, God's grace is always towards us. But as we walk with God in this life, there are some things that we do that actually grieve His Holy Spirit. Are there areas in your life where you are not walking in step with the grace of God? Are there areas in your life where you are presuming upon God's grace and kindness, not knowing that His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Probably more common, are there any ways in your life where you are still trying to work for God's favor rather than resting in the favor of God given to you in Christ? My friend, if that's you, you need to repent of that false notion of God that keeps you from truly understanding the gospel of His grace. The gospel of God's grace is that it's free for us because it was purchased by His Son. All we have is to receive it. Thomas Watson, I'll close close here. Again, Thomas Watson said, what will tempt us to believe if not the mercy and the grace of God? It's the only motivation we need to come to God is this promise that He is gracious. May the Lord be pleased to answer Paul's prayer in this church as we devote our lives to serving Him as the God of grace. Would you pray with me?
O Lord, let Your grace and Your love do for us what fear of Your terrors alone cannot. Meet our hearts by that nobler principle and give us rest in Your grace. Father, may Your grace be with us, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Benediction comes from Hebrews 13.9. Do not be led, as, led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. May your hearts be strong in the grace of the Lord as you go forth this week and live for His glory. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.